the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, good evening and thank you for joining us here in Education Nation. I am Headmaster and host Rebecca Hagstrom. And it's a privilege to join you every Saturday evening here on AM 1280, The Patriot. And, of course, I'm joined in studio once again with our producer of Education Nation and my co-host, Mark Turkin. Another good evening. How are we doing this week, Rebecca? I am doing great. I'll tell you, we've kind of gotten through this cold snap, and now the weather is supposed to be very, very warm. Yes, they're saying, I think, January was just cloudy most of the month. I know. We talk about the weather a lot here in Minnesota, don't we? We do. We have nothing else to do. (laughs) Right. Right? In these months. We're buried under the snow. Yes. (laughs) Well, in August of 2019, the New York Times launched a series of more than 30 essays, artistic productions, live events, and a multi-episode podcast series, all with the same goal in mind. The newspaper's self-proclaimed purpose was to reframe history, convincing Americans that our nation's true founding occurred not in 1776, as all of us were taught in our schools, but in 1619, when... 20 slaves came ashore in the Jamestown colony. 20 people. That's quite That's quite the statement. That's quite the goal that they have there. It is. It is. In <laughs> fact, the, the New York Times newspaper insists that America's founding ideals, ideals rather, were false when written, and anything that makes America exceptional grew out of slavery. Our guest tonight tells us this reframing distorts America's progress and the exceptional ideas that drive it. Yeah, for sure. Well, joining us by telephone tonight is Catherine Kirsten, and Catherine is a writer and an attorney, a senior policy fellow and founding director at the Center of the American Experiment, having also served as its chair from 1996 to 1998. Catherine has also served as a Metro columnist for the Star Tribune from 2005 to 2008, and before that was an opinion columnist for the paper for 17 years. Catherine, it's an honor to have you join us again tonight on Education Nation. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yes. Well, we always love and we know you're one of our popular guests, too, on the show. <laughs> so um, how did this idea first become a, uh, the, the idea for the 1619 Project? How did it first come together? Well, I think it is uh, just part of the American left's larger project of reframing history generally uh, in order to 
convince people that our nation is just irremediably flawed and that we're going to have to see a, a social and cultural transformation, political transformation, led by them, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> of course. Right wrongs uh, that are, you know, as they say, in the DNA of our nation. I mean, there's, a, there's clearly a larger agenda here. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think it's interesting that it's come from the New York Times. You know, so often um, it comes from elite circles, but tends to be more in the education realm. This is the first time that I can think of any way where it's coming from a journalistic source. How unusual is that? that, Yeah. They they, they actually had an ad on the Super Bowl. Yes, uh, I saw that. that. Promoted this. And and, uh, I think a a primary... uh, fruit is was intended from the beginning and that is they wanted to influence the way that american public schools mm-hmm. uh and probably private schools teach about uh the origin of our nation and yes. i read recently that the pulitzer center has created a curriculum and distributed it based on what uh the new york times is saying here to now more than five thousand schools across the country so clearly they oh want to reach goodness. our young people with um, this damning message about mm-hmm. um, the you know the evil supposedly at the core of this nation. Yeah. Oh, it's very right. And from what I understand, too, Catherine, I mean, didn't the New York Times really pull out just all of the stops as far as the different uh, forms of media expression, not only using print, but putting together a podcast and they had different yep. artistic uh, displays? Absolutely. And it's important to point out that uh, this uh, project of theirs has been uh, very severely criticized by some very prominent American historians. Mm. Uh, but uh, they have uh, their, their response has essentially been uh, snarky rejection. Unbelievable. This is, this is, a, this is a very ideologically mm-hmm. driven. It's not mm-hmm. about history as a search for truth. Okay. Don't. Yeah, I was just going to say, don't confuse us with the facts. They just want to. <laughs> they want to. They want to reframe it, as you said at the very beginning, and shout down the opposition mm-hmm. in the process. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, that the phrase we we often uh, hear it in a lot of uh, different circles, especially during election season. But we also hear it in the study of history. The phrase "American exceptionalism." It's mm-hmm. often used in describing the founding of our country. And you know, despite America's short comings, and, and no one denies them whatsoever. Mm-hmm, right. And there's no nation on the earth that's perfect. But why is America truly exceptional? Well, it, for the reasons that at least uh, those of us beyond a certain age learned mm-hmm. in elementary yeah. school, uh, this nation was was launched by uh, visionary founders who saw this as a great experiment in mm-hmm. ordered liberty, in democratic self-governance. I mean, this is entirely, mm-hmm. this notion of a nation founded on ideas of justice and equality and freedom was utterly, utterly unique in the world at mm-hmm. that time. And although, Mark, as you point out, yeah. we've had fits and starts, this nation's history really has been one long progress toward freedom, uh, a city on a hill, uh, mm-hmm. as the Puritans said so long ago, mm-hmm. yes. to serve as a model for, for all others. Right. So then in Con—oh, right. go ahead. What was that? Millions flocking here. Millions and right. millions of people flocking here to take advantage over the uh, the centuries of that freedom. Right. Which, to me, this is one of the, the, the biggest holes in the left's arguments, is that at the one hand, they want to say that we are 
kind of, you know, rotten at the core as far as our founding goes and that it was racist from the beginning. At the other, on the other hand, they want to open up the borders and let anybody come in because everybody wants to come in. Why do people exactly. want to come in? Because they do know that this is an exceptional nation. <laughs> yep. so, right. That's um, a big inconsistency. Yes, it really, definitely. Well, in contrast to this idea of American exceptionalism, how does the 1619 Project aim to recast Americans' concept concerning the founding of this nation? Well, um, of course, they, they, they want to say that this nation is is wholly corrupted uh, by a history of slavery and mm. racism and inequality. And to make that case, they, they use uh, distortions and half-truths and, and outright falsehoods uh, about the nature of our founding ideals and what's happened since mm-hmm. our founding. And they, they, they do what the left um, in, in a number of areas now in terms of historical revisionism. Uh, they, they create this kind of simplistic, uh, and false good guy, bad guy narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so, of course, it's well. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna. I was just gonna make a comment. I was gonna ask you this question um, because I am not a historian, so I think you probably have a much better handle on it than I do. But my recollection is that the Jamestown colony was completely they they completely died. Com- correct. Is that correct? Um, the Jamestown colony. Well, I don't know, but not. I wouldn't say the Jamestown colony completely died, but um, it was very different in its orientation initially right. than not the Puritans. I mean, then, mm-hmm. what happened in Massachusetts um, with you know, the, the Pilgrim Fathers and uh, the National Association of Scholars, which is a wonderful group of, uh, of basically college professors concerned about this kind of mm-hmm. thing, um, has launched something called the 1620 Project, hmm. not the 1690, but the 1620, because that was Pilgrim, uh, the, the Pilgrim's arrival and uh, Plymouth Rock. Right. And yes. the, the, these are people who brought their families, who, who, who were searching for religious freedom, right. and to stay here. That wasn't the case with the James Right. Town, that's what uh, I thought. Founding. And I think that that's an important distinction for Absolutely. people to understand that, yes, there was a Jamestown colony, uh, but their values did not match what the country was eventually founded right. upon. Yep. And that was the Mayflower Compact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and that, of course, plays no role whatsoever. It's never mentioned in the 1619 Project. See, again, there, yeah. <laughs> well, we are discussing the reframing of America in the New York Times controversial 1619 Project uh, that uh, did debut last August of 2019. We're discussing this here on Education Nation, here on AM 1280 The Patriot, with Catherine Kirsten, a senior policy fellow and founding director at the Center of the American Experiment. And Catherine, you had just mentioned the good guy, bad guy narrative and how misleading it is, because it does rest on several central falsehoods. Uh, we'd like you to take some time now to share with our listeners just some of the historical misconceptions that exist as it pertains to how the project portrays slavery. Yes, uh, exactly. Well, um, it, it, this project is essentially nothing about the fact that until recently in human history, slavery and human bondage were really the unquestioned norm across the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. Ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome, all across Asia, here in the New World, the Incas and the Aztecs, and actually uh, Native Americans even here Mm -hmm. in Minnesota. And in the early 1800s, about three-quarters 
of the world's population is estimated to have been either in slavery or serfdom of some kind. And that continues today. Uh, there are nations uh, still where uh, 40 million people or so across the globe mm-hmm. are estimated to be in, in slavery. So this is not something for which uh, America bears unique responsibility at all. Mm-hmm. That's ex- and that's an important point. Distinction, absolutely. Yes, it really is. You've written that the New York Times creates the impression that most slaves in the Atlantic slave trade were brought here. So first you're pointing out that slaves were the norm, not that we are by any means think that that's a good thing, certainly was a horrific thing, but it was the norm. So it's not just America that was um, participating in this. But then within the Atlantic slave trade, um, the New York Times creates the impression that most of the slaves were brought here to the U.S. From your research, how true is the idea that Americans bear unique responsibility and should feel overwhelming guilt today? Right. Well, uh, it, it actually, only uh, between four and five percent of uh, slaves in the Atlantic slave trade were brought here to uh, what is now the United States. Mm-hmm. The other 95 percent wow. went to Latin America and the Caribbean, and 40 wow. percent um, of that of the total went to uh, Brazil alone. Wow. So you know, it's by by just focusing on America, you you create, again, this sense that we are uniquely evil, mm-hmm. but we don't have to address what about the vast majority of slaves right. who, who went to the, the rest of the, the New World. Right. And that says nothing about, um, you know, that slavery's institution across the rest of the world, especially in the East. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not only that, but the um, 1619 Project also lays blame not only on Americans, but white uh, Europeans as well. Yes. In fact, you know, Europeans were latecomers. That's what you've written. If you'd explain for our listeners what the slave trade looked like in parts of the globe several centuries earlier. Sure. Well, uh, one uh, huge omission from the 1619 Project is the role that Arabs played in um, the slave trade. Uh, It's been actually called an African Holocaust uh, what what the nature of their slave involvement? Arab slave traders removed slaves from Africa for about thirteen hundred years. Thirteen hundred years, or thirteen centuries. Uh, wow. That happened only about three centuries in the Atlantic uh, slave trade. So wow. Arabs wow. were were really critically important, and that's omitted mm-hmm. in, in the New York Times piece. Mm-hmm. Well, you've also pointed out um, that the New York Times is essentially silent about another fact um, that doesn't fit its narrative in the 1619 Project. Explain for our listeners how Africans themselves were central players in the slave trade. Yes, well, uh, the slave trade simply couldn't have happened without the the, the intimate involvement of Africans. Uh, there was a fascinating Wall Street Journal piece on this uh, a few months ago, uh, and that piece said that buying and selling human beings uh, was part of African cultures long before the worst, uh, the first white people landed in mm. Africa. Mm. What, what the, the Europeans couldn't go into the interior of Africa to find slaves. What they did generally was to, to wait on the coast, wait off the coast for African traders. And there were actually whole tribes or, or slave trading ethnic groups like the Afik people of Nigeria who brought the slaves to them. And uh, 
there were more Africans who were kept in slavery by Africans themselves, even at the height of the the Atlantic slave trade, uh, than were sent to the Americas. Hmm. Which in some respects is not surprising when you look at the history of the tribes. There's so much tribalism and so much infighting um, in Africa that, that dates back, you know, obviously centuries and centuries. And you still see some of that even today. Yes. Yes, there's, there's, there are definitely slaves in Africa yeah, today. Yeah, as there are also in Haiti. Haiti was a slave yeah. who was started by, in fact, they, they, those were slaves that revolted. Um, yep. And yet there are still slaves in Haiti. So yeah. the very people that were slaves who revolted now turn on their own people, and there are still yeah. ch- child slaves, especially in Haiti oh. on a regular basis in the slums, particularly. Terrible. Yeah. Um, Back in 1998, then-President Clinton issued a formal apology for slavery during a visit to Uganda. And the response from the president of Uganda was much different than what President Clinton was expecting. (laughs) Um, Can you explain that? (laughs) Well, I'll just just quote from what uh, the Uganda president said. He said, uh, African chiefs were the ones waging war on each other and capturing their own people and selling them. If anyone should apologize, it should be the African chiefs. Wow. You don't hear that in the New York yeah. Times. No. Nope. Yeah. Somehow that didn't make it into the 1619 Project. <laughs> a little more complicated than, uh, right, than they're trying to make it seem, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's quite That's quite a powerful statement, though. It is. Mm-hmm. I wonder what his reaction was. Mm. Uh, yeah, I yeah. don't know. Did anybody get that on camera? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've looked for it. I can't find it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we've been mentioning just throughout this uh, this half an hour that, again, this project is seeking to reframe American history and really distort the country's progress. And again, it is a process of progress. Uh, the project, it charges that our founding ideals were false when they were written, and the founders didn't actually believe them is what they uh, uh, accuse. But here are the facts. In the Declaration of Independence, the founders stated that all men were created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And while much of American history focuses on the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation that freed the slaves, how did some of the prominent founders view slavery? And what events took place at the end of the American Revolutionary War that reiterated the founders' belief that all men were created equal? Yes, a good good question. Well, um, there was there was such deep ambivalence about slavery from the Virginian uh, founders themselves. James Madison, Madison, for example, who was from Virginia, um, called slavery a national evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the founders from the North, people like Ben Franklin. Uh, uh, opposed it, and uh, Franklin himself was a president of an abolition society. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Declaration, as you say, Mark, uh, really laid the, the moral, political, and, and social foundation for the eventual extinction of slavery. And you see this uh, right from the, the beginning of our the, the fact that when we became a nation. Um, so after the Revolutionary War, right after it, six of the former 13 colonies abolished slavery. Mm-hmm. And the Northwest Ordinance, uh, right after that, 1787, barred it in this huge new territory uh, that, yeah. uh, that came to us from the British. Um, Congress abolished the slave trade in 1808. That was as soon as the Constitution provided for it. That is a slave trade, you know, the, the Atlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. And in the Civil War, as we all know, 
there were uh, 360,000 Union soldiers who gave their lives uh, to end slavery. Uh, President Lincoln talked about that, uh, the fact that uh, that, that the Civil War itself might have been the price, he said, that God had exacted from our nation because it, it tolerated slavery. Then right mm-hmm. after the war, we had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And, of course, in the 20th century, uh, Brown and Board of Education, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. Uh, and interestingly, at the time this legislation was passed, all Supreme Court justices and senators who did this were white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let, let me ask oh, this ahead. real quick, sure. too. You know, you mentioned 1808 was the first year in which some of this abolishing uh, could take place. Why mm-hmm. do you think it, it couldn't take place immediately right after the, the war? Was it uh, believed that, they, that the oh, establishment that of freedom... Oh, you mean the Revolutionary War. Right. Sorry about... Okay. No, that's okay. <laughs> like the establishment of freedom and the release of slaves could not happen at the same time? Well, uh, it, this was a, a promissory note in our in our declaration. And then, as you say, in, in the Constitution with the 1808 date, uh, the problem, of course, was that we inherited slavery from the British. We mm-hmm. didn't choose to create it here. Okay. And it was uh, important in the agricultural economy of the South. So it was just too difficult to to okay. fight the most powerful nation in the world, Great Britain, for our freedom without the wholehearted support of the Southern South. states, mm-hmm. uh, which which were not... Uh, open to abolishing slavery, at least you know, on the scene at that point. One of the things that happened was that uh, everybody expected slavery to, to die a natural death because it really wasn't very uh, efficient economically. And then the cotton gin was invented. And all of a sudden, um, slavery did become uh, very profitable mm-hmm. for the, the tiny minority of, of Southerners who owned a slave. So that uh, created another barrier, which you know, eventually mm-hmm. led to the Civil War, obviously. Mm-hmm. You can see why historians are upset about the 1619 Project, because as you pointed out, James Madison and Benjamin Franklin, uh, Franklin even being part of an abolitionist society, uh, you know, it's it's mind-boggling to me that they are comfortable presenting this history, uh, well, uh, it's not history, <laughs> presenting right. this this story as yeah, though yeah. it were history when it when it clearly isn't there's so much clear evidence and yes. um you know I, I i hope we have more time at the end to even kind of talk about how do we counteract this but um that's one of the things that's going through my head is we got to stop this somehow right. and get the truth out because they're they're wisely unfortunately going through schools mm-hmm. to try to to teach this story to and knowledge our is sto- powerful our, and yes, that's why we have platforms yes, like this yeah. to get the word out yeah sure. yes well, Catherine, you mentioned a little while ago um, that following the Civil War, there was the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, mm-hmm. which quickly followed, and they abolished slavery, guaranteeing former slaves legal equity or equality, mm-hmm. sorry, and the right to vote. Um, and then you mentioned some um, black civil rights heroes, yeah. former slaves Frederick Douglass and the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., yep. How did these two men view the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, as opposed to what we're hearing now through the 1619 Project? Right. Well, that's such a good uh, question. Um, The the 1619 Project claims that our founders didn't actually believe the ideals that that they included in the 
in the Declaration and the Constitution. Ironically, this is just the view of uh, a notorious uh, supporter of slavery like John Calhoun, Mm. who said there wasn't a a word of truth in the Declaration of Independence. Now, Frederick Douglass, who was the the, the great um, uh, civil rights hero, Mm -hmm. an anti-slavery hero of the Civil War era, had a very different perspective. and He called the Constitution a, quote, glorious liberty document, Mm. unlike the New York Mm -hmm. Times. And Martin Luther King called the Declaration a, quote, promissory note to which every American uh, was to fall Mm. near. Mm-hmm. So uh, how odd does the New York Times would take a position opposed to, to Douglas and King in this respect, exactly. and, you know, aligned with John C. Calhoun? Yeah, yeah, that is just shocking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the 1619 Project, it doesn't stop there. It also takes aim at America's economic prosperity, which I'm thinking okay. it mm-hmm. is probably leaning on trying to make the argument for economic inequality, per se. You know, how does mm-hmm. the New York Times portray our country's financial successes? Well, unbelievably, it says everything that made us exceptional grew out of slavery, including our uh, astonishing economic uh, prosperity. And uh, the the idea uh, that I, I touch on in uh, my article is that this, again, is very similar to what these southern planters who supported slavery during the Civil War said. They said cotton is king. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they, it, was, it was the center of, of American prosperity. And if the times were right, the South, of course, would have won the Civil War. I mean, how false to say that slavery somehow of this defeated southern slaveocracy uh, it still is the, the basis for our economic right. well-being. Right. That's a very good point. It's an important point. So we just have a little bit of time left here, Catherine, but we wanted to get your opinion here. Given that the 1619 Project views America as racist to its core, how does the project urge Americans to view one another now? And what might the future of America look like if this vision spreads its influence? Right. Well, it it is extremely dangerous uh, because it's it's a very divisive racialist ideology, and it's been to me. So... Unlike Martin Luther King, uh, we are now supposed to view each other as members of racial groups first Mm -hmm. and as individual human beings, people of character second. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a deadly message to be giving to to um, young black Americans, Mm -hmm. for example, this condescending victim talk. What we need to be doing is is holding up inspiring examples of the kinds of beliefs and habits and behavior that enable everybody to take full advantage of the priceless benefits of living here in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So well said. So true. Yes. And I don't know if you have some ideas for how we counteract this, but... um, you know, how do we get like the the historians that are trying to speak out about this? How do we get their word promoted? Obviously, we're covering this on our show, and there's a reason for that. We want people to hear about this. Um, do you have other ideas in mind at all, Catherine, for how to counteract this? Well, you know, it's pretty tough when uh, the, the media uh, and the entertainment industry and the educational establishment. Yes, all three. The, tri- all the trifecta. Yes. The other side, but. 
clearly that's that's one of the benefits of, of shows like yours and, and mm-hmm. social media mm-hmm. are these you know relatively unmediated kinds of channels of communication and I think parents need to complain yes, uh, to school too. leaders to say this is fault mm-hmm. it's interesting that you know I wrote a lot about the Edina schools and I yeah. I spoke with a young um, a black student there who uh, said that she approached another black student who said he was not doing well because of of uh, teacher discrimination. Mm-hmm. And she told him, he, he mentioned slavery, she told him that Africans themselves have been involved in slavery, and he absolutely refused to believe it. Wow. Um, you know, Unbelievable. So the, the, yeah, I think yeah. getting getting the message out uh, the way you're doing it and by, by parents going to, watching what their kids are learning mm-hmm. and the teachers, maybe even bringing in um, some historical evidence, which yeah. is not hard to find. Yeah. It's excellent. Excellent. Well, Catherine, we are so grateful to have you on our show today discussing you, the 1619 Project. And thank you to Mark for putting together our wonderful topic today. And, Always informative. Uh, I learned something new I know, every week. me too. This is a big one. So thank you to our listeners. And we ask that you would take the time to listen to this podcast or other podcasts. And you can go to ednationmn.org ednationmn.org to find this one and all of our other podcasts. Visit us on Facebook at Education Nation Radio. See you next week.